Our reading comes from Revelation chapter 11, and I'm reading initially anyway from verses 11 to 14. And it's all about two witnesses. And we hear John say, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was an earthquake, a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. And so ends God's word to us. Lift him up, his praise will be heard. Here, the praises of God spoken as John interpreted and heard them and saw them. I read from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 to the end. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. 
then, God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. hailstorm. Praise God. Amen. We're going to skip the next song. Well, I hope you've been enjoying the series on Revelation. Um, I was very reassured by the introduction that Tim gave right at the beginning, um, partly uh, because it comforts me that there is necessarily no right interpretation, so I, I have a bit of a pass this evening, but it's a tricky, a tricky thing. But right at the beginning, Tim said that often we avoid revelation because sometimes we think we don't like the message it might contain if we look too hard, uh, and also sometimes we find it a bit difficult. But neither of these are reasons to shy away from it. I think there's another reason as well. I heard Pete Hughes preach this summer, and he was warning about something that he called the truncated gospel. So this is one that only focuses on the story between the fall and salvation. Um, If we focus our preaching and our teaching on the truncated gospel... We preach only on that bit of the message that all have fallen short of the glory of God and all can be saved. Now, of course, these two facts are true and they're powerful and they're very important, but they're actually only the middle of the whole story. The beginning of the story is that God made us for relationship with him and that what he saw when he made it was good. If we start our story with a fall, we miss out on so much. We start from a place of disappointing God, being far away, rather than from a place of love. And I've seen this message be really quite damaging to a lot of people that have been rejected and hurt in the world, and who actually need to be confronted not by a God who's disappointed in them, but a Father who loves them and thinks the world of them and desires a perfect relationship with them. So that's the bit that we miss off the beginning. But the other bit that we miss when we just focus on the middle is the end. The redemption, the perfection of all things. Which is why it's so worth spending the effort uh, going through Revelation. Because although salvation is critical and important and crucial, it's not the end. Uh, by avoiding Revelation we miss this last piece And in the past few weeks that we've invested time, I think we are beginning to be rewarded in learning more about that next piece of our story. So the story so far, the recap, what I think I've learned from the bits of the series in Revelation so far that I've um, been fortunate enough to join in with, I think we've come to understand that Revelation is a book that contains many, many important truths about what is to come, but it doesn't set out a precise timeline or blueprint for how these things are going to happen. And it shouldn't be used to attempt to create a blueprint or predict exactly the sequence of events. We've come to understand, I hope, that far from being out of control, the things that we see in Revelation are in fact entirely under God's control and God's command. And that the story is one of victory, And it's a story of the victory that has already been won on the cross, being claimed on the earth as justice is finally served and his eternal kingdom is established. 
And crucially for us, the church, we've seen how the saints, that's God's people, that's us, have a role to play in the things that are to come. We've seen how powerful the prayers of God's people are in their intervention for justice and how powerfully God answers them. And we've also seen how God's gracious mercy protects his people from the worst of the troubles that are to come. And since we've been pondering the series on Revelation, I've also been pondering the, the trumpets. There seems to be quite a lot of trumpets going on in the bit of Revelation that we're at at the moment. Um, some of you uh, may know that my son Ben is allegedly a trumpet player. Often it's the silence where the sound of trumpets should be in our house that's the problem because he doesn't quite practice as much as he should. Um, but I've been pondering the meaning of, of these trumpets and I know that, that Tim has spoken about how it, it shows that God's in control, it shows that God's in command. But also I wanted just to speak to you a little bit this evening about the Jewish festival, the Feast of Trumpets. Because I think actually, far from being mysterious, quite a lot of the things that we see in Revelation were probably quite obvious to the people that heard them uh, the first time round. So the Feast of Trumpets it happens at the beginning of the Jewish year, sort of around the end of September. And it heralds the beginning of the time for the preparation for the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement, you're probably aware it's a very, very big deal in the Jewish calendar. It's the day when all the things that have gone wrong get put right, (laughs) basically. So there's a lot of um, um, atonement, there's a lot of uh, sacrifice sometimes or coming to God. It's the time when people are held to account for the gap in what they've promised God and what they've actually delivered in the previous year. And the Feast of Trumpets happens 10 days before the the Day of Atonement. And these 10 days are called the Days of Awe in the Jewish calendar. And so when you hear the the words in scripture, wake up, sleeper, uh, and these trumpets sounding, um, in, in in the Jewish tradition, the trumpets would be sounded to give you kind of 10 days warning to get ready, because the Day of Atonement's coming, so get ready. And many Messianic Jews, they're the the Jews that recognise Jesus as Messiah, have made a connection between the autumn feast, so the 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 festival of the trumpets and the Day of Atonement, and the book of Revelation. And I, I, I come back to this point that I think Tim made earlier, that although to us Revelation is often mysterious, the point of it was that it was meant to be understood. God doesn't give us words that are meant to be mysterious, that are meant to confuse us. He gives us words for a purpose. And I think that many of those uh, who would have received the message originally, obviously, would have been very familiar with the Jewish rituals and traditions. And so many of the things that might seem a little bit mysterious to us might be because we've lost the connection Um, And it might be made a little bit clearer to us if we dig a bit further into some Jewish history. So this is where we're going. I hope it's okay. So the day of the Feast of Trumpets, the loud sounding of the trumpets, calls back those who've gone astray. It gives them warning that the Day of Atonement is approaching. The Day of Atonement is a day, as I said, that the Jews come to make payment for all the things that they've done wrong and all the things that they've gone away from or departed the covenant it's a time where they remember God they remember the promises that they made to God and it is a limited opportunity to put things right 
The Jewish tradition also has it that it's the, on the day of the Feast of Trumpets, the Book of Judgment is opened, and you've kind of got a 10-day window to get some extra names in, which is quite a nice idea. So um, although scripture is not entirely clear what the original event was that the Feast of Trumpets commemorates, it must commemorate something because it's described as a memorial. So it's remembering an event that's happened. Um, And although it's not directly in scripture, the majority of Jewish tradition seems to hold that it is a memorial for the time when Moses received the commandments on Mount Sinai. And if you read that account in Exodus 19, there is an increasing escalation of trumpets. The the blasting of the trumpet sounds and the long trumpet blast is when 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 Moses gets called up to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. And so as the Jewish people hear these trumpets, they're reminded how far they've gone from that place, how far they've gone from being face-to-face with God on the mountain and receiving his word directly. So I think this gives us a a convincing context for where we are today in our journey through Revelation. Because in Revelation 10, we've heard the trumpet sound. We've heard, um, as Tim spoke about this morning, that the Lord speaks in thunder, similar to God did on Mount Sinai. Um, A different interpretation of the rainbow of the angels and the pillars of fire speak powerfully of the covenant relationship of God, reminding people about when God led them through the desert with the pillars of fire and when God put the rainbow in the sky. So again, it speaks of covenant And the food that is eaten on the Feast of Trumpets is pretty much anything dipped in honey. So if you were here this morning, you'll see there's a link there. And all the sweet foods that are consumed on the Feast of Trumpets is to ask God's blessing for a sweet year ahead. So the scene is set for us in Revelation 11. We understand that God is a God who seeks to protect his relationship with his people. He's heard their prayers. But a time of judgment is finally upon the earth because the trumpets have sounded. The fact that the scroll covered in honey left a sour taste might give us a clue that this isn't going to be a sweet year, that it might be a difficult year ahead. In his vision, John is given a measuring rod and commanded to measure out the temple and the altar and count the worshippers. I've discovered that apparently the question as to which precise temple he was measuring is quite contentious. Scholars seem to have spent a considerable amount of time and effort and words considering whether it refers to Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or whether it's a temple that will be built during the tribulation or a whole separate temple that will be established possibly on the earth or possibly in heaven at the end of the the new millennium. It seems to me, and I hope this isn't a cop-out, but it seems to me that so often, as is the case with scholarly debate, they've rather missed the point. For me, the temple on earth has always been a reflection of the temple in heaven. That's fairly clear when you read the very first instructions for the very first temples back in the Old Testament. And I think we need to ask originally what would the readers have understood. So I think the kind of readers of Revelation are likely to have been those steeped in Jewish history. They may well have recently read the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews we read... You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and to storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them, because they could not hear what was commanded. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. 
You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the Jewish believers have already been told through the book of Hebrews that God, who they know about meeting Moses or Mount Sinai to give them the law, this is the same God. But whereas before you saw God and you died, there's a new way now. There's a way where there's a different covenant. There's a covenant where you are saved by coming into the presence of God and I think they will have begun to understand that a high place, a measured out temple, isn't a thing that they need to come to anymore with fear and trembling. It is a place of safety and of refuge and of salvation. And I think maybe they weren't worrying about whether it was Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or one that was been built yet or not. But they will have understood that as this temple is being measured out, it's saying there's a place where God dwells that is now safe for us. So the two witnesses, let's think about them for a minute. It's largely accepted that these two witnesses are either are or represent Moses and Elijah. And this certainly would follow the Jewish tradition that these are the two prophets who appear before the return of the Messiah. It ties in with the fact that in Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah are the ones who meet Jesus on the high mountain when he was transfigured. The symbolism traditionally, apparently, is that Moses represents the covenant and Elijah represents restoration. So again, fitting in very, very well. And if you take it right back to Exodus 19, in that very first meeting with Moses and God, God instructs Moses to measure out limits around the top of the mountain, set it apart as holy. In Exodus, it's very clear that there is a setting apart of the holy space and the unholy space, and this is similar in the Transfiguration. So I think it's not entirely dissimilar, this measuring out of the holy space. What is a bit confusing is the bit about the separation between the Gentiles on the outside. And interestingly, it doesn't just give a label to the people on the inside. So it's unclear whether we, the church, are in or out at this point. And I'm a little bit nervous just to join in with the idea that we're all automatically in. Um, There's been a lot of slightly wonky in my opinion theology where you just replace the church for Israel in everything but I think the bit that makes me think maybe we are on the inside of the city is that later on it describes the people on the inside as the worshippers it doesn't seem to suggest one thing or another and also at this time of course the church the church that John was writing to in the letter of Revelation would have contained believers from Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds so I think it's probably fair guess that all the worshippers are on the inside of this measured out space. And so the two witnesses that we read about in Revelation 11 have a very difficult time. Because while the worshippers are inside the inner court and are safe, the two witnesses remain in the city, apparently as the sole representatives of Christ, testifying and prophesying for more than a thousand days. And again, the figure might be literal or it might be symbolic. If it's symbolic, it ties in rather well to a previous destruction of the Jewish people that they suffered under Syrian rule that lasted for about the same amount of time. 
and there's similar numbers in Daniel. And this, this number, this, this amount of time, seems to have come to symbolise a terrible but limited time of suffering. So we know that time is running out as we work our way through Revelation 11. The sound of the seventh and final trumpet is almost upon us. And this is why the testimony of the witnesses is so crucial. It's a powerful message to the church. As long as we have breath, we should be using it to witness to the coming glory of the Lord and urging people to restore their relationship with him. And as long as we have breath to speak that message, the potential for that message to save people is still there. Anyone who tried to harm or stop them from speaking was devoured by fire. They are more than telling of God's power. They demonstrate and embody it. Notice also how everything is under God's control and God's protection. Only when the witnesses are finished their testimony are they handed over to the beast. I think here we see the references to Moses as well, because the witnesses have the power to do some very familiar things, actually. They have power to turn water into blood and to say, send plagues on the earth. Terrible signs. But as we remember the story of Egypt, we remember that these signs precede the liberation of God's people and God's victory. As you read, as I read the, the stuff about the witnesses, I was also struck by the parallels to Jesus' own ministry. Three and a half years, a familiar amount of time. The time that the witnesses' prophecies is the time that Jesus' own ministry was active, under God's control, according to his timings. And only when Jesus cried, it is finished, was he handed over to death. And so the bodies of the witnesses lie in the cities that we told are figuratively Sodom and Egypt. That is, they represent all that is evil, all that is against God's purposes, all that enslaves his people. The fact that these bodies of these beautiful witnesses lay unburied for three days while the people celebrate. Again, many parallels with the death of Jesus. The authorities thought they'd defeated him, but they didn't realise that the power of God extended beyond the grave. And if you've seen the Narnia film, this reminded me of that section where Aslan lay slain on the stone table and the white witch and all her creepy beasts celebrate in that really dark party. And I think in our world often there is a desire to celebrate and take perverse pleasure from all that is dark. And I feel a strong repulsion to Halloween for this reason. And I'm very, very pleased that we offer the light party for our children. I think that's a really, really good thing. But our society does seem to have a desire to celebrate all that is dark and all that is evil while turning their back on all that is good. And we know, though, that that's not where the story ends. Because we know that although the witnesses' work might have been finished, God's work was not yet complete. Because after three and a half days, breath of the life of God entered them and they stood to their feet. There followed an earthquake, many more lives are lost and a cry from the survivors acknowledges God of the heavens. And so we come to the seventh and final trumpet, the moment where the kingdom of Christ is established finally and for all eternity. And as Revelation 11 ends, we are taken into the scene where the elders worship and where the temple in heaven is opened. And notice a subtle difference from the phrase that we're so used to as they give thanks to the one who is and who was. No mention of the one who is to come because they've done that bit. 
He is now just the one who is and who was. Yet this is only the end of the second woe. The third is still to come. And I guess we'll have to tune in next week to find out how that ends up. So what have we learnt this evening from Revelation 11? Maybe it isn't so mysterious after all, but things that are coming might be quite similar to some of the things that have already gone before. Maybe if we brushed up a little on our Old Testament history and our Jewish traditions, it might help us reading these things that we find difficult and mysterious. Or maybe I've just missed the point. (laughs) But I think we can learn that we can expect God to protect and preserve his people. That's very clear. We can expect there to be huge opposition to the preaching of the word. And maybe if we're not getting opposed, maybe we're not preaching it right. That there will be moments, and possibly even extended periods, where it looks very much like we are on the losing side, where people will mock and jeer and even celebrate the demise of God's people. But God is still in control. And that right up until the very last moment, the word of God will be preached, even if only by one or two brave witnesses. And so even up until the very last moment, the people will have a chance to hear, to repent and to give God the glory, because this is the character of God. This is who he is. But that ultimately justice will be done. And that the establishment of Christ's kingdom will come in all its power and all its glory. And that is assured. And so we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is still to come, because you will take great power and you will begin to reign. Amen.